and welcome to History Zine, The Spanish Flu, Episode 3. In Episode 1 of this series, we introduced the pandemic. In Episode 2, we made an, an emotional connection with the condition. For this one, I would like us to put together a timeline to make it easier to envisage where all the bits and pieces slot in. First, we have those precursors to the pandemic that we looked at briefly in Episode 1. They are the waves of infection in England and China the previous year. Those are matters for conjecture, but for the moment we shall conject them not. We start to get firm evidence that something extraordinary is happening on the 4th of March 1918, when Albert Glitchell checks into the infirmary at Camp Funston in Kansas, USA. Camp Funston supplied soldiers to other camps across the Midwest of the United States, and the infection went with those soldiers as they moved. In April, the United States of America joined the First World War, and they began exporting troops and the influenza across the Atlantic to make landfall in France and begin to spread the virus among the troops along the Western Front. Then, reports start to appear of flu among the German troops. They apparently referred to the condition as Blitzkatar. I wonder how it crossed the lines. Maybe prisoners, maybe infected surfaces in a capture position. The flu then spread across France, into Spain, and also the other way over the Channel to the United Kingdom. By the end of May, only two months after those first reports in Camp Funston, King Alfonso Thirteenth of Spain fell ill with the influenza, and once that hit the newspapers, it became known all over Europe that there was a new pandemic abroad, and it therefore received the rather misleading name of Spanish flu and came to be characterised by the ghoulish depiction of the Spanish lady carrying death wherever she went. In May, the flu was reported in Wroclaw, that's in Poland, and the Russian port of Odessa. It spread to North Africa, Mumbai and India, and then all the way to China. By May, it had also landed in Australia, and then, thankfully, the spread of infections seemed to abate. The British Medical Journal for July 1918 reports that influenza is no longer a threat. This first wave is often referred to as mild, but mild here is definitely a relative term. This wave of flu caused incredible chaos, loss of life, much, much suffering. It had a significant effect upon the strategy of those involved in the war. Wage owners just couldn't support their families. Large sections of the economy shut down all over the world. There just weren't enough well people around to keep even basic services open. This was a huge pandemic with massive consequences. Just 40 days after Albert Glitchell contracted the flu in Camp Funston, we see 20 million infected and 20,000 dead. Unfortunately, however, when compared to what was to come, it can only be seen as, and here's that word again, mild. In August 1918, the flu returned, and it had mutated in something much more deadly. We see it appear initially in this new form at Freetown in Sierra Leone, Boston in the United States of America, and Brest in France. It is impossible to know where this new strain initially mutated, but it seems likely to be somewhere in Europe. Not very specific, I know, but it seems to be the best we can do. It looks as if the flu was taken to all these places from ships emanating from Europe and transported on troop ships. 
in the West African port city of Freetown, it was the British naval ship, the HMS Mantua, that visited death on those shores. The ship arrived on the 15th of August with 206 sailors aboard. By the end of September, 1,072 people, that's about 3% of the entire population of Sierra Leone, were dead as a consequence. On August 28th, flu broke out on the receiving ship at Boston, Massachusetts. A quick aside here. There was a peculiar situation at Boston, so the receiving ship wasn't actually a ship, but a barracks built on a pier. A receiving ship would be one where newly recruited sailors were kept before they were assigned a regular place. In Boston, the vessel had been needed, so they had built quarters on the pier and just called it a ship. Anyway, flu broke out on the receiving ship and by mid-September had infected 2,000 of the 21,000 sailors in the Boston area. Just 45 miles away, there was an army installation of 50,000 men. By the end of September, there were more than 14,000 flu cases there, and 757 deaths. Of course, the disease also spread to the civilian population, and despite desperate attempts to slow the spread, closing down theatres, movie houses and dance halls, by mid-October 3,500 Bostonians had fallen to the flu. Troop movements soon spread the infection to other camps throughout the United States, and of course, more troops were arriving and leaving from more ports, carrying the deadly virus with them. The various strains of the flu were also being shuffled backwards and forwards across the Atlantic on incredibly crowded troop ships, the perfect vessel for the efficient transmission of the virus. One particular case is notable. This is the Leviathan. On September the 29th, 1918, the USS Leviathan left New York to transport fresh troops to Brest in France. There were 9,000 troops on the ship and 2,000 crew. By the time it docked at Brest, 2,000 were sick and 80 had died and were buried at sea. Most of the men were too weak to leave the ship and by the end of that day, another 14 of them had died. There's an interesting side note about the Leviathan. Among the crew on the ship was the film actor Humphrey Bogart. This was where he supposedly got his famous scar from German shells. However, it doesn't seem as if the Leviathan was ever shelled, so this is unlikely. What is certain, though, is that he will have seen some grisly sights during these troop movements, with so many of his colleagues and passengers bleeding, vomiting and drowning in the fluid from their lungs during the passage. By the end of September, the flu had spread all through Europe, and the American Expeditionary Force had introduced it to Russia through Archangel as they arrived there to support the anti-Bolshevik forces. By September, it arrived in India, and was in China by October. By November, it seemed as if the rate of infection was beginning to slow. New York declared the epidemic over on the 5th of November. On the 9th of November, the Kaiser abdicated, and on the 11th, the armistice was signed. The world breathed a sigh of relief that the years of fighting were over. And if breathing a sigh of relief were all that they did, then the world would have dodged a bullet. But unfortunately, there were mass gatherings and celebrations as the people rejoiced. These revels would inevitably lead to a great resurgence in the spread of the infection. Manchester in the UK had been fortunate during the spring outbreak in having an enlightened health officer who had given advice about social distancing 
not sharing towels, and immediate isolation when infected. This had resulted in Manchester suffering much less than similar cities in the UK. When the infection returned to the United Kingdom, it was spreading elsewhere but seemed to be passing Manchester by. The authority became complacent and were convinced that no special measures were necessary. On the 24th of October, the Manchester Evening News was talking about Manchester's comparative immunity from the disease and claiming that there was every likelihood that the outbreak would leave Manchester almost untouched. The health officer, Dr Niven, was alarmed by this and had thousands of handbills printed, reiterating his advice from the spring and stressing once more that anyone feeling unwell must avoid crowds as to mingle with others would spread the infection. When the news of the armistice came through, all this advice was completely ignored and the whole of Manchester erupted in mad celebration. Munitions workers marched into Albert Square singing patriotic songs and people all over the city left their workplaces to join in the celebrations and stayed there throughout the day and long into the night. In that week, the flu death rate in the city jumped to 383 and kept climbing and climbing thereafter. It raged on into December, but finally began to slow once more. Seeing this, the Australian authorities, who had shown great foresight and enforced very strict quarantine procedures, started to relax those procedures. In fact, Australia is one of the very few places on the planet that had completely sidestepped this lethal second wave. However, it was too early to relax. The third wave struck in January and more than 12,000 Australians died. This wave was not so mild as the first, but neither as deadly as the second. It did result in hundreds of thousands of deaths and tore through Europe and the United States, lasting on until summer in the Northern Hemisphere. There is conjecture over a fourth wave, but in a time where viruses were so little understood, it's extremely difficult to tell what other outbreaks were connected to this one. We would need to collect samples of the virus from the victim and compare them with those that had died in previous waves. The technology needed to do that was just not available at the time. So there, we have a very basic timeline. April 1918, first and mildest wave begins. June 1918, first wave abates. August 1918, second and most lethal wave makes itself known. Late December 1918, second wave abates. January 1919, third wave begins. June 1919, third wave ends. Hopefully that'll be enough that we can all envisage what was happening and when it was happening. And it also helps us to see the scope of it all. This was a huge catastrophe in a very short time. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll all join me again next time. Bye for now.